0: Now here's your host, the master of relationship sales strategy himself, Dave Lorenzo.
1: Cold calling sucks, knocking on doors sucks, talking to strangers sucks, selling stuff the way you were taught to sell stuff absolutely sucks. This is the Do This, Sell More Show. I'm Dave Lorenzo, and you are in for a special treat today. This is going to seem like a conversation with an old friend, because, in fact, it is. Today, we have with us Barry Conchie. Now, I know Barry Conchie. Before he was, from before he was an absolute superstar in the field of executive coaching, leadership selection, and professional development for those at the C level. And when I say C level, I mean CEO, chief operating officer, chief financial officer. If you're in a leadership position in a company, this is the guy you need to listen to. He's the guy you need to invite in when you're having real challenging issues and when you're thinking about making serious moves and you don't know whether you're doing the right thing. And I know senior executives are hesitant to admit that they don't know when they're doing the right thing, but Barry Conchie is the guy to call. Now, I know Barry from our days of working together at Gallup. He was one of my most valuable partners, but right now he owns his own company. He's the founder and president of Conchie Associates. He previously headed the Gallup organization's global leadership research and development business. And he was there until 2013 as a senior scientist. He was born and educated in the UK. That's why he sounds much more sophisticated than I do. Uh, He's got 35 years of experience in the areas of psychometric assessment, executive coaching, top-level succession planning, individual and team optimization, organizational effectiveness and strategic alignment. And if he sees you eating in an unhealthy manner, he will even help you with your diet. Barry has consulted and partnered with the leading global organizations. I mean, if you think about it, Barry has either worked with them, he's working with them right now, or he will be working with them shortly. His current research is in the science of decision-making, heuristics, and cognitive bias. If you don't know what that is, you need to stay with us because he's going to describe all of it for you in language that's easy to understand. And in my mind, that's Barry's true gift. He takes complicated issues, complicated decisions, and he helps you break them down so that you feel good with the decisions you're making. Barry's an author. He's written a couple of books. He appears uh, in magazines. He writes for magazines all the time. He's the co-author of the Wall Street Journal best-selling Strengths-Based Leadership, which was a book he he co-authored a few years ago. He currently lives in Boulder, like he he runs all kinds of like mountain marathon type stuff and he hangs from rocks. He'll tell us all about that. Please join me in welcoming Barry Conchi to the show. Barry, welcome and thank you for being our, I think you're our fifth ever guest.
2: It's a pleasure, Dave. Good to see you again.
1: It's great to be with you. Now let's start with what what I couldn't remember. Tell me, are you still, you're still like rock climbing without ropes and stuff? Are you still doing that?
2: We're still doing crazy things, mountain biking, rock climbing, uh, doing mountain running, basically anything in the mountains, Dave. You you take me to a beach, I don't know what to do, but put me (laughs) in a mountain, I can keep keep active for, for days on end.
1: Well that's perfect. Tell me a little bit about some of the lessons you took away from 2018. Particularly there's one that I love because I think most of most of us people who work in sales, particularly sales leaders are uh, are guilty of this all the time. So your your lessons from leadership and by the way you can find these lessons of leadership on Barry's website which is conchieassociates.com c o n c h i e associates.com, associates.com altogether. His lessons of leadership are on there, and the one that drew my eye immediately, not just because it was first, but because it's the one I think most people are guilty of is about doubling down and defending bad decisions. So, all right, Barry, we're all guilty of this, right? Sales leaders especially are guilty of this. What do we do? Instead of doubling down and defending a bad decision, once we realize it's a bad decision, and I think that's a huge part of it, right? Once we realize it's a bad decision, what do we do?
2: Well, there's something called sunk cost fallacy, Dave, where people believe that because you've put so much investment time or resources into into a problem or a, an issue you're working on, even if it's not working, you would rather put even more in and try to make it work than just write that cost off. And it's an aspect of, of psychological functioning. We don't like to think we've failed. So... We have a project, we've already lost a ton of money on it, and we think, maybe just this last investment will make the difference. Maybe it's just this last effort that somehow I haven't discovered so far, that if I just push through and work really hard just for this next few weeks, maybe it will solve it. It never does. Uh, So the sunk cost fallacy suggests that literally it's a fallacy to keep sinking costs into a failing entity. First challenge is to realize it. Second challenge is write it off psychologically. Stop thinking that you're gonna solve a problem that no amount of effort so far has led to a solution. Get out of it.
1: And at what point do you, how do you, well, let's start here. How do you, what's the easiest way to admit to yourself that this is something that's not going to work and I need to move on? Is it a question of viewing it as a learning experience versus a failure? I mean, what have you found in, in counseling executives who make decisions that don't work out and they're, they're, they're just doubling down and they're bought into them? What, what is the mindset shift that needs to be made in order, for them to, in order for them to move on?
2: Well, the toughest one is a public one. So if you've signed up for something and you're pursuing something and it's a very, very public issue and you are failing, that's very, very difficult for people to step away from. Uh, I can think of a couple of examples. I mean, we, we, we've, we've spent plenty of time working with companies who've acquired other companies. They don't always work out. Now, to what extent do you just write it off? To what extent do you say, I can't succeed with this? And it's difficult when the issue is so visible. If it's visible, we almost feel a sense of shame, embarrassment, or failure. Actually, I think if you think about it very carefully, I think the reverse is true. If you can turn around and admit, that a public commitment you made is now no longer viable for these reasons. I think your integrity goes through the the sky. I mean, everybody looks at that and thinks, whoa, somebody admitting a mistake in public? Uh, So I actually think paradoxically it would be better if leaders did that than to continue operating on the pretense that they're going to succeed when all evidence suggests that they won't.
1: Yeah, and there's, a, and there's a human aspect to it, too. You appear to be more human when you admit that, you, that you've made a mistake. There's a, it's, almost, it's almost like it's akin to empathy. People, people can really then connect with you on a human level.
2: They can, and we've all been in that situation. We've all had these uh, insurmountable problems. We've all thrown everything that we had at the issue that we're dealing with, and yet we've not succeeded. Step away. I mean, just admit that maybe you're not the person to solve this. Maybe there's somebody else who can, but there's no shame in stepping away and saying, you know, that was, that, was, that was not a problem I could solve. That was not an issue I could deal with. Yeah, I'm gonna admit to that, and actually there are a whole ton of things where I can be more successful and more effective. I'm gonna switch over to votes. That will be a much more mature thing to do. Your credibility increases as well.
1: Tell me about um, hiring and, and surrounding yourself with people who are uh, who, who are complementary to your to your strengths. Right? We we work in a world where it's still more common for people to focus on uh, you know fixing the things that they're that they're not great at. Do leaders are are leaders as threatened by the prospect of bringing in people who are strong in areas where they're weak as, say, you know, a, a salesperson would be?
2: Well, I wish it was as sophisticated as that, Dave. I wish I wish people, when they're going through the hiring process, actually had a good line of sight to those issues. The truth is they don't. So if we were to look at building complementary partnerships, so given who I am as a leader, I've got different deficiencies in known areas, I'm going to select people for those deficiencies. I wish it was as clinical as that, but it isn't. A lot of the time, I spend time working with leaders who are operating under a delusion where they don't believe they have deficiencies in critical areas. So that's one problem. Then the second problem is there's no amount of expertise that they have that will enable them to elicit those deficiencies in an applicant during a job interview. So there are two problems there. There's a self-reflection problem. And there is the I can't identify in the other person as well. You put those two things together, you got a dog's breakfast. It's not gonna look good.
1: So what's the so the first step then is to do a personal inventory and and really be introspective and and look at yourself, is that right?
2: Yeah, and I would say the the personal inventory needs to be uh, an objective assessment. It can't be I'm just gonna sit and reflect on myself for the next 20 minutes and put a list of of things down that I think about myself. I mean, we're going to see several levels of wonderfulness at the top of that list. And then at the bottom, we're going to say things like, well, I work too hard. Um, You know, things that that are not really weaknesses at all. They're just obvious statements of of self-aggrandizement, and we don't want that. So I think the best thing to do is to put yourself through a a very robust objective assessment that is designed specifically to identify the characteristics in you that will cause you to succeed or failure for the level that you're at. And there are tools out there, we build tools like that, where we talk to leaders and assess leaders precisely for that purpose. And then that gives you at least a clinical basis for thinking then through the kinds of people you need to surround yourself with. But I would quickly say you're the least equipped to figure those things out on your own with, again, uh, not having some kind of objectivity to what it is that you would put a person through who is trying to get a job in your company.
1: Isn't it amazing how most often the people who advance in the company advance with, uh, with, a, with a total deficiency of self-awareness? I've met more sales professionals in organizations who have self who have a greater sense of self-awareness than than CEOs why do you why do you think that is why is it that people who seem to rise up through the ranks of leadership are often less self-aware is that is it that they've never been cast in a role that's ideal for them what what causes that
2: I'm not I'm not so sure it's a blanket lack of self-awareness I think that there are certainly individuals who are not as self-aware as others um I think leaders are typically more self-aware because they've had a ton of feedback as they've risen through the ranks. They've either gone through 360 processes or they've had other kind of coaching or guidance to clearly address issues where they're not very strong. So I think that's, that's probably a better way of stating that issue. There are a few people who are completely unaware of what their primary strengths and weaknesses are, but they tend to fail. They tend to get weeded out at some point. The issue to me is not that they lack self-awareness, but they lack a clinical precision to describe it in an accurate way. So we tend to use very broad, generalized buckets. And a leader might turn around and say, well, you know, I'm just not very good with numbers. And then when you really dig into it, it really isn't the number element at all. It's that they are just not detail-oriented and are not prepared to put the time into really understanding the details in order to elicit the information that they need from whatever they're looking at. It's not that they're they're not a numbers person. It's that they've got attention deficit disorder and they're rather interested in other things than the details that are in front of them right now. So it's the lack of clarity and precision around aspects of their functioning that is the issue rather than completely lacking in self-awareness.
1: Oh that's interesting. I uh, now I understand so it's harder for them to describe what they're what they're feeling uh, rather than not knowing what they're feeling. I I run into this concept all the time of the greatest salesperson in the organization being promoted into being uh, a leader of uh, of that organization. And you and I both know from the work that we've done in the past that most often that leads to misery for just about everyone involved. It leads to misery for the person who's in the, who's in the job. It leads to misery for the company and it leads to misery for the people that they're, uh, that they're managing, that they're, uh, that they're leading. What is, and this is going to be a, a, a great softball question for you. What is the proper way to structure an organization like a sales organization where there's so much unique ability in the actual doing of the role or the, the actual uh, managing of the role every day? What's the way to structure that?
2: Well, you know, the, the simple thing on sales is that performance is a qualifier. So if you're looking at advancing your career as a sales rep and you want to move into sales management, the truth of the matter is some people can make that transition, but others can't. But performance is the qualifier. So here's, here's a way to think about it. Let's just say you've got the potential to be a brilliant sales leader, but your performance is horrible. There's no way you're going to get that opportunity. And the reason for that is you don't have credibility with the people you're supposed to be leading. So you haven't met the minimum requirement. The minimum requirement is you hit your quota, you hit your goal, you do it consistently, it's visible, people can see that, you are believable. Now we're going to figure out, can you lead salespeople? That's a different question. The fact that you're a brilliant performer in the sales role makes no guarantee or prediction that you'll be able to lead other salespeople. So the first issue then is look at performance as the the qualifier. The second element is that just because you're performing very well does not give you the abilities to lead other salespeople. We need to figure that out. We've got to ask different questions of you. And the way I think about it is this: it's a bit like a pyramid If everybody who's performing well in your organization is populating the base of that pyramid, a relatively small number of people who are populating the base of that pyramid through performance are going to advance to the higher levels of that pyramid. We're going to see people falling away. And it's not because they're not performing. It's not because they're not trying hard. It's that they're in a better position selling than they are managing people who sell. Now, the biggest problem, Dave, as you know, is that we're not short of ego in a sales force. <laughs> we a good one. If we've got a good sales force, we've got a lot of ego in that room. It's very, very difficult for a sales rep with that kind of an ego not to believe that a sales management position isn't for them. It's so, so hard because they've been so successful all of their lives. And I often sit down with these real top performing reps and say, do you want to spend the next 10 years in misery? Or do you want to have a lot of fun and sell even more? And put that way, it makes the choice relatively easy. But absent of that kind of pressure, some of them feel with their ego and their aspirations to be bigger and better and do more that they should move into a management position where they might be a complete disaster.
1: And isn't it also incumbent upon the organization to uh, structure a recognition and reward program so that there's almost two tracks? So in the sales organization, you have the leadership track for people who have the talent to, uh, to manage, motivate, and inspire others. But then you also have the top performer track where those folks are recognized as the engine that makes the company go. And I, and I, I find, you know, I, I want to see if you're in agreement on this because I find that oftentimes organizations are hesitant to create that second track because, two, because of two things, really. They, number one, they don't want to feed that ego even more. They're afraid of what would happen if they feed that ego even more. And the second thing that they're uh, that they're overly concerned about is they're overly concerned about hurting the people, threatening the people who are in those leadership positions, and they, they've just completely lost focus of what will actually drive the outcomes. I, I, I'm interested in your thoughts on that.
2: We solve that problem by screening reps at the time that they're hired for management capability. So imagine you want a rep job in a company, you want to sell in a company, so you apply for a job there. We take you through one of our online screening tools. That tool is also reading whether you've got potential to be a manager at some point in the future. It gives you an early indication. So to your point, if you create a management track, let's base that management track on credible evidence. And that credible evidence needs to be assessment-based, not just you thinking this person might be a good manager, because I'm not prepared to trust your judgment. So what we then do is we have a category of rep now who has a job to do, they got a quota to hit, they've got customers to win over, products to sell, solutions to sell. They have a successful career doing that, but at the same time, we're actually exposing them to management education, manager development. We might put them on broader cross-functional teams. We might stretch them out a little bit because we saw in their assessment an indication that they could be a sales manager one day. And we're we're going to grow that. We're going to test it. We're going to see it. And that, to me, is a very sensible approach. The other way you structure a sales force is to create different ladders to different destinations, but not taking a person out of their role. So can we create a super rep? One of the, one of the things that I've been particularly interested in is looking at the relationship between certain talents for selling and geographic spam. So you know, if somebody's a successful sales rep, does putting them in a bigger geography with bigger opportunity increase their likelihood of succeeding or failing? Uh, That's an answerable question we should we can test that so I like organizations that look at that another one is to say okay uh, We're actually going to give you bigger accounts to go after but we're going to layer underneath you a sales support person somebody who can come along and who can um, Do some of the follow-up work with some of your customers because you're out there pursuing greenfield opportunities and we can create a ladder that looks like that so, one ladder might be, I'm going to give you massive territories. Another ladder might be, I'm going to give you the biggest customers. Another ladder might be, we've got something called national accounts, where, you know, uh, the, 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 these organizations cut across many, 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 many geographies. And therefore, we need to sell this in at the system level or the national level, where we're not having reps nibbling away at each each customer in each geography we're trying to put together an overarching deal around a structure that enables us to sell in at the, at the entity level. Those to me are the kinds of solutions I would like to see organizations pursue. And then sales reps can almost self select or we can help them select and then they can get value climbing each of those different ladders.
1: That's great. I, I love, I love those thoughts. Those are, uh, those are great things for us to think about. I focus on relationship based sales. So I help companies with large long sales cycles. I help companies who market to the affluent. I help people who are in situations where they're not going to there's not going to be a one call solution. I am a huge advocate that everyone must have a relationship based sales approach in their in their toolkit because You never know who's going to refer you to to your next big client, regardless of whether you're writing, you know, you're a pharmaceutical sales rep trying to get doctors to write more prescriptions, or you're a a payment systems person who's trying to switch credit card processing, get people to switch their credit card processing company. Or if you're out there, you know, working for Gulfstream selling jets, or uh, you're a trust and estates attorney trying to get uh, family office work where, you know, you do estate planning for people who are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. My contention is, and I, and I want to hear what you have to say about this, my contention is those two sales approaches, the cold call, what I call hit and run sales approach versus the relationship sales approach. I think it's very difficult to find those talents, those, those, that, that set of innate ability in one person because they're, they're, they're two different types of people who, are, who excel. each of those what do you think about that given the research that you've done into you know behavior and people over the years
2: well for one person to have both those capabilities would be unique and i would say you know why 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 go for a needle in a haystack it makes no sense to me Um, so the folks who are really really good at cold calling breaking down doors and operating with, to a degree, relational insensitivity because they're getting pushed back all the time. They've been told no nine times out of ten. I mean, to to be able to succeed that way uh, requires a certain type of talent and characteristic, and, and we've built assessments for that kind of sales force where they really are selling. They're stacking it up, and they're selling it cheap, and they're selling it in volume. And they're showing up to different places They're knocking on doors and they're getting no, 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 maybe. And then they just go after the maybes and and they work on, they work on math. They, they, they say, okay, for every 20 calls, I'm going to make one sale. And so they set their days with 20 calls knowing they're going to close one of them and they're going to get no, 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 as they go to the day. That's a special talent. But it's not a relational approach. And if you want to drive value in sales, you've got to have fantastic relationships. So let's get back to the cold caller again. Is that cold caller going back and back and back again and, again and again and again and again and maintaining that relationship. No, they've done the sale. They're moving on. Right. There are other, other places to go sell. And that's how they're wired. And you know, they're, they're, They've sold it. You ask them three months' time whether they sold it. They can't even remember. Uh, because it just disappears into the past, right? Now, if I sit down with you as a with a relationship and say, "Well, Dave, you know, I just don't remember who the heck you are," then that's going to be a problem if we're trying to build a proper relationship with an organisation. So, the way I characterise it is, um, you can stack stack them high and sell them cheap and sell them in high volume, and it's a numbers game, or you can. Can build a relationship over time, and that relationship will drive long-term value. Because you're actually not selling products in that relationship, you're selling yourself. But when you sell yourself, there's an ethical component to how that looks and feels for a client. It makes your word matter. It means that you've got to be accurate around what you sell. You've got to very be very precise in the description of value. Now, sure, you're going to say doing business with me is way better than the the guy down the street and here's why, but then you use that as the basis for building a fantastic relationship with that buyer over time to the point where you can't tell them any different from your friends. I mean these are people that you'd call, right. you'd invite them to your to you know the kind of kids' graduation or whatever it might be. In other words, you develop fantastic relationships with them as friends. You just happen to do business with them.
1: That's perfect. I love. Uh, I I love that. That's a that's a great commentary. You know the one of the one of the things that sticks with me from our time at Gallup was looking at the folks who had, and we were able to, and you you do it now with your company. You can you can you can identify somebody who has empathy versus someone who doesn't have empathy, and that to me is one of the key elements that differentiates the you know hit-and-run salesperson from the relationship-based salesperson. The hit-and-run salesperson can learn what to say to mimic empathy, but it never, ever appears genuine, and the clients know it, they can sense it, and they can feel it. So when you get into the, the types of products or services where caring and long-term thinking and just the emotional aspect of a, uh, a relationship-driven process, the hit-and-run salesperson, the one who's really, really good at it, doesn't have it. They just don't have it. And uh, that's, you know, your, your way of describing it is, you know, I think it's, it's spot on. You, you almost described it now as being diametrically opposed. You, it, to take no that much, you have to be wired in a way that relationships are just not important to you because get, like me, if I heard "no" all day long i 'd be a basket case i wouldn't be able to get out of bed i couldn 't do it
2: well, look at it this way dave um, and i think I think asking this question of sales reps is really uh, you know r- really important as you think about their their orientation around their work and things. but ask a sales rep who's beating down doors every day and selling whatever product's in front of them, can a salesperson sell anything? And they'll say yes. And they'll say yes, 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 yes. And the reason is that's what they've been doing their entire life. They've been bouncing around from company to company, all doing the same kind of thing. I'm putting my foot through a door. I'm, you know, breaking in through somebody's office to talk to them, whatever it is, but I'm selling, 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 selling. You go to a relational sales rep, a rep who's building a long-term relationship with a customer based on mutual value around what it is that the two of them are trying to achieve together. And you say to them, do you think a sales rep can sell anything? They say, absolutely not. Right. And they even turn around and they say, there are some things I will never sell. And, 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 And that's because what they are selling is so much a part of who they are as a person that they could never imagine themselves selling that product. Now, sometimes it's brand specific, but I actually think it's more around sectors of different kinds of work. So for example, could you imagine yourself being a sales rep in Philip Morris? elicits a very different response from a relational salesperson than it is from somebody who says, hey, that might be a way of earning a lot of money. Right. Uh, and, and, And it's that kind of questioning that I wish reps would carry out for themselves to pre-screen themselves for different opportunities that might face them.
1: All right, so we've, we've had a great conversation with Barry Conchie, the foremost leadership expert on executive performance. If you want to find out more about Barry, I want you to go to, I want you to, go to his website. It's Conchie Associates, C-O-N-C-H-I-E associates all together. So dot com. Barry, where can, we, where can we get more Barry Conchi? Is there, is there a place to go besides the website? What, can we, what should we look for? What have you got coming up that we need to know about?
2: Well, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can connect to me there. I post quite frequently there on different issues of the day with respect to leadership. Uh, we're going to have a book coming out in about a year's time. Uh, which is going to be looking at critical issues around leadership. We will be planning a series of articles that will be preceding that. So, yeah, connect to me on LinkedIn. look Look at what's going on. I'll keep people up to date, and you'll find out more about how we think about the kinds of work that can help people really achieve top performance.
1: Brilliant. So what I'm going to do folks is I'm going to put Barry's LinkedIn, I'll put his website uh, link in the show notes, which you can find on YouTube, on uh, iTunes, on Google, wherever you get your, wherever you get your podcasts. I'll also put his, a link to his LinkedIn profile. So you can click on that. You can also find all of this information on my website on, under the podcast tab under the show with Barry Conchi. And I have to tell you, I could talk to Barry for another three or four hours. I have talked to him for three or four hours straight, but much to, much to his delight, we have a limited amount of time today. Barry, I wanna thank you for joining us. It was, it was an absolute pleasure. And you will be back in, uh, in future episodes to talk specifically um, as long as you're willing about sales leadership, because we have a, we have a great challenge in this country. We have, there are a lot of salespeople, but there are very few people who can, who can uh, inspire and motivate and help salespeople succeed. And that's really what, what it comes down to when it, when it comes down to being a sales leader. So as an expert on leadership, we're going to lean on you for more advice on sales leadership in the future.
2: Well, look forward to it. Thanks very much, Dave.
1: All right, folks, that'll do it for another episode of the Do This Sell More show. We'll see you right back here again next week. And until next week, I hope you do this and sell more. Do this, sell more. My name is Dave Lorenzo, and my mission is to help you make a great living and live a great life. We'll see you right back here next Thursday.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. Give us your feedback on each episode and get access to our free sales training course at DoThisSellMore.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Do This, Sell More.